You're listening to the Higher Ed Marketing Lab. I'm your host, Jarrett Smith. Welcome to the Higher Ed Marketing Lab. I'm Jarrett Smith. Each episode, it's my job to engage with some of the brightest minds in higher education and the broader world of marketing to bring you actionable insights you can use to level up your marketing and enrollment efforts. In this episode, we'll be exploring how schools can develop a sound strategy to differentiate their offerings and attract more right-fit students. Joining us in the conversation is Dr. Chuck Bamford. Chuck is the author of two of the most widely used strategy and entrepreneurship textbooks, as well as the Strategy Mindset 2.0, a practical guide to the design and implementation of strategy. We start by talking about a few of the common misconceptions leaders often have around what constitutes strategy, including why your brand isn't actually a differentiator. Then we dive into the basic process for developing a sound strategy, including how to identify your most important competitors and how to determine what really makes your school exceptional in the eyes of prospective students. We wrap up by talking about how to manage an institution's broader strategy with program-specific strategies. Chuck is an energetic advocate for making strategy both accessible and practical. And while much of his work is focused on developing competitive strategies in the private sector, I think you'll find that he offers fresh thinking for anyone looking to craft more effective strategies for their own institution. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Chuck Bamford. Well, Chuck, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jared. Good to be here with you. Yeah, well, I'm so excited to have this conversation around strategy, competitive strategy specifically, and the idea of differentiating schools is really top of mind. A lot of people are talking about it, thinking about it. And I just think you have such a clear and interesting way of approaching some of these really kind of tough questions for our organizations. Uh, before we jump into all that, I was hoping maybe you could just give us a quick snapshot of your background and professional work. Sure. So I was a, an M&A guy after I graduated from college for about 12 years Went back and got my PhD in strategy and entrepreneurship at the University of Tennessee. And for the next 16 years, I was a classic professor, exactly what you expect. Tenured professor, I was at Texas Christian University, the University of Richmond, the University of Notre Dame. About eight years ago, I left my tenured role, much to the chagrin of my friends, and started my consulting company. So I run a strategy, design, and implementation consulting company. We're very boutique, very small, just a few employees working with me to really assist organizations in getting clients and customers to go past competitors and come to them. I write too many books, Jarrett. Uh, I've written seven books, several of which are used at these universities as textbooks. We have one of the big strategy textbooks and entrepreneurship textbooks um, along the way. And then, of course, I have the Strategy Mindset 2.0, which is the one that we were talking about, which is really about how to do strategy. Mm hmm. Well, and I love this book, Strategy Mindset 2.0, and a lot Thank of what you. we're going to talk about today. Yeah, well, you know, one of the things I like about it is just, a number one, it's a slim volume. So if you're not a full-time student, you can actually carve out time to read it. It's a great read. And it's just very clear, very lucid thinking that kind of just gets to the point here. A lot of business books drive me up the wall because they're so lofty and it's like, okay, but what do I actually do with this? I just love how you kind of get to the point, which is, which is Thank awesome. You. 
So I want to start out by just kind of talking a bit about what we mean when we say strategy. It is a word that I think gets used and abused a lot. It gets kind of thrown around pretty casually. And on top of that, you also have a lot of different kinds of strategies. You know, I'm in the marketing world, so I'm always hearing things about, you know, what's your social media strategy? Or if we're talking about enrollment, you know, what's your recruitment strategy or retention strategy? So I'm wondering if we could just start out by de defining for us, what do you mean when you say strategy? What are we really talking about? Maybe how do those other strategies fit into that picture? Yeah, I, I think you hit on it. That everybody, everybody uses the word strategy. And, and when it's used for everything, then it's nothing, right? So mm -hmm. strategy is not that hard. I think people overcomplicate strategy, but strategy at its core is about getting customers or clients or whoever it is in the nonprofit world, it's donors to go past my competitors and come to me. That's what it's about. The fun thing about strategy is it really consists of just two things. I don't care how much effort you want to put into it or how many little nomenclatures they want to put in. Half of strategy is not frustrating your customers. Half of strategy is not frustrating your clients. So it's the table stakes things that are simply expectations. Let's make sure that on all the table stake things, we're at about the same level as all of the other organizations we're competing with. Then the other half of strategy is having two or three things that truly separate you, not fake things like we've just got better people. No, you don't have better people. They're really great people at all these places. It's about two or three things that are true separators so that we could go eyeball to eyeball with the customer, with the client and go, you should choose us because, mm -hmm. and it be real. Mm -hmm. In the strategy mindset, you have a whole chapter. It's like the first chapter of the book kind of devoted to different ways people go wrong with strategy. It's kind of like a greatest hits of, of strategy myths. It's an entertaining read. You list out some things that are commonly confused with strategy. One of them is brand. You say that that our brand is not a competitive advantage. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Why? Sure. So... As you know, because you've read it, the opening part of this book, I'm pretty snarky. I decided to go after all the sort of classic myths. It's kind of like an exorcism. If we can go through it and get rid of those, then we might be able to actually do something. Mm -hmm. So brand is one of the classics, right, Jared? People talk about their brand strategy and what their brand is. And the reality is everybody has a brand. Every organization has a brand. So brand is not a differentiator. What makes the brand have value, right? It's made up of two, three, four things down here that are our competitive advantages that lift up that brand and hopefully a layer of doing the orthodox well, doing the table stakes well, it lifts it up. So you think about brands, they rise and fall all the time, right? The value of the brand rises and falls. It's not because the name changed. It's not because of the logo or the cute little colors that they came up with or the fact that we just keep pushing it out there. It's about what it really stands for. So brand is simply a way of recognizing current competitive advantages. So, And, and you've heard me use this example, So, I'll, but I apologize if I do it for everybody. You know, back in the 80s, there were two brands that were out there that everybody knew about that are still out there. One was cool and cutting edge and you had to have all of their stuff. 
and he had to have the Walkman and the Trinitron TV and Sony was it. And then there was this joke company called Apple that couldn't even sell their computers. So we gave them away to the junior high school students. To this day, we still have Apple and Sony, but Apple is up through the roof because of the things they've done, what their competitive advantages are. And Sony is way down because they lost their way, become sort of table stakes in the industry. Sorry for the long answer here, Jared, but brand is not a strategy. It's what makes up these things that then you assign to your particular brand. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Another one that you kind of take to task is the SWOT analysis. <laughs> How do you feel about SWOT, Chuck? <laughs> yeah. it's, it's funny you should say this. We reposted out my SWOT is not strategy post out there, mm -hmm. and it's got thousands and thousands of people out there on it, on LinkedIn arguing right now. Look, SWAT was never a strategy. When you go back to the original Michael Porter work, SWAT was a conceptual framework. So do we want to know what our strengths are? Of course we do. Do we want to know what our weaknesses are? Of course we do. But just calling it a strength doesn't make it a strength. Just because a bunch of people in a room put little post-it notes up on it doesn't make it a strength. So what we need is an analysis tool. What can we do? And we've got these tools that determine what our competitive advantages are. What are the tools to determine which weaknesses we should really focus on? What are the tools we can do to take advantage of opportunities? And I can work my way through this. So if at the end of the day, people want to put it into a framework and put it up on a wall and list it, I'm okay with that. But to call SWOT analysis, just because we all did it, no, it's not analysis. Mm -hmm. And quite honestly, totally unnecessary. Right. So, okay, there's a whole bunch of other ways you kind of, talk about strategy kind of going wrong in different sort of mistakes people make, but let's talk about what we should do. And you said there is a way to approach this. So I guess at a high level, how do we appropriately approach questions around strategy? How do we go about determining the right strategy at a high level? Yeah. So I'm, I'm assuming you're okay if I take up the next phase, say hour and 45 minutes. Go for yeah. it. Go for it. It'll okay, be great. Here we go. No, I'll try yep. to do it then. So you really break up strategy and thinking in terms of formulation and implementation. You have to think about them together, but fundamentally we do that. So strategy starts outside of the organization. Strategy starts with whom you're competing with. Strategy starts with who you think your customer is right now, who your client is right now. You need to have a framework for that. We always talk about bump competitors, right? If we lose a deal, who got it? And if we get the deal, who didn't get it? We need to understand whom we are competing with and what their real advantages are. Once we have that as a framework, and there's quite a bit to that, we can go inside the organization. And now when I split it up, much like I just did with you, I won't go into detail again, but let's look at everything that's table stakes and make sure that we're at the meeting expectation of customers. And then let's figure out what we think our competitive advantages might be, what we think they might be. And then we can evaluate each one of those through a tool. The one that's most well honed is some version of resource-based analysis. So it's sometimes called VRIN or VRIST or VRIO. At heart, I'm a professor, so it's called resource-based analysis. If I had made it up, it would be referred to as the Bamford approach. Of and course. I would be on, uh, yes, and I'd be on a yacht in the Caribbean. But <laughs> it's not that. It is actually <laughs> that we have a real tool. And what we use is a modified version of resource-based analysis, modified just for practicality point of view, right? Let's just be practical about how we go through and do this. 
Once you've figured those things out, you've got your orthodox things, table stake things we have to work on. We've got two or three competitive advantages sitting over here. Then it's all about implementation, Jared. And whereas strategy design, kind of fun, at least I think it is. Strategy implementation is messy because it involves people. Like I've got to get all the people now, all the employees on board. So it's all about communication. It's all about the approach that we take. It's all about the way we're going to move it forward. So what would be the metrics we're going to use? What are activity metrics? What do we want to hear customers say? What might be the mission of the organization? How are we going to structure the organization? And it goes on like that. Mm -hmm. So it cycles through all the way to that end part where given what our competitive advantages are, given what we have to do with implementation, now who is our perfect customer? Right Now that we've got this more refined, I want to increase the hit rate of my sales efforts. I want to increase the success of the sales efforts that we make, not just broad gun shots. So if we know now that these things are really constitute our competitive advantage, which customers, which clients would be most wanting to go after that? And what we typically craft that into is something we call the perfect customer. And that is... They instantly get our value proposition and they're willing to pay us for it. So that in a short version is sort of the cycle. And then it sort of keeps going depending on what happens in your environment. Mm -hmm. I did that pretty fast here. Yeah, that was great. It can often take me hours. (laughs) Well, to do it well, to understand the broad strokes is one thing. To do it well is another. (laughs) True enough. Yeah. So you talk about, kind of go back to the very beginning, the beginning of the process. You're you're looking outside of your organization, right? So if I'm in senior leadership at a school, we're looking to revisit our school strategy and think about how can we be more competitive? How can we attract more students? In that external analysis piece, you talk both about understanding the competitors and also understanding who your ideal, in this case, who your ideal student would be. Maybe let's just kind of dive into the ideal student. I mean, and maybe this is too obvious of a question, but Why is it so critical to have a really clear picture of your ideal student or your ideal customer? Why does that matter so much? Yeah, and I frustrate, and I may frustrate some of your viewers on this as well. I frustrate people and did all the time when I was in academia full-time. I view students as customers. Mm -hmm. I don't have a job in front of the room unless they buy into it. Now, what they're buying is to work very hard, to be able to do something when they finish my course that they couldn't do when they started my course. What they're buying is a lot of effort, but that's what they're absolutely customers. Every university, every college, it would seem to me has got an ideal customer set of customers. Those are going to be most successful in my programs, in the offering that I have, in the environment that I've created, right? So I want more of those that would be successful, happy, because what I want is advocates when they graduate to go out and advocate for their university and for their school. So it's crucially important to really understand not just what you're offering and a lot of what we offer at universities. Come on. A lot of what we offer is generic. It's orthodox. We have to offer all kinds of things. We have to offer all kinds of services to students. We have to offer. There's so many things we do because the bar is high in our expect in our student expectations. And quite mm-hmm. honestly, being raised higher by a number of universities to keep ratcheting this kind of expectation up. But above that, besides that, there are things that hopefully we have that are real competitive advantages. 
And those students who that would apply to most, they're going to join us faster. They're going to stay with us through their entire program and graduate with a degree. And they're going to be advocates when we leave. You know, listening to you talk about that, I think probably a lot of folks listening would say, well, of course, we have our right fit student. (laughs) I kind of wanted to pursue that question because what I found is that in practice, if you're at a tuition driven school that really has to work hard to attract students, there's just the natural instinct of, okay, but how are we going to appeal to more and more people? And, and I know there's a balancing act here and I I think you talk about it. You've got kind of your ideal set of customers, your ideal set of students. Everybody has to broaden to a certain extent because there may not be enough of those that you can get in the door. But at the same time, if, if you ultimately default to trying to appeal to everybody, it's just, it's not going to succeed. Yeah. It's a, it's going to fail. So I, and you know, this, I'm a, I continue, I'm an adjunct professor still. Um, I get to teach all my classes in a six week period of time, which is very nice up at Duke university. Duke doesn't have to spend a lot of time on this kind of stuff. A lot mm-hmm. of people will apply to them automatically. For many years, I was a professor and tenured professor at Queens University of Charlotte. So we were exactly what you just described, Jared. We are a tu- they were a tuition-driven university. And the key became, what are we going to focus on? What is it that a group of students would really like that they're not going to get at every other university, right? So mm-hmm. the very first thing is, whom are, who are we really, who are they really comparing us to? Who are... Mm-hmm. The students that we believe, and it's our, it's an opinion, right? But who we believe are perfect fit for us. Who else are they considering? Great. Let's go do some competitive mapping. Sorry. Let's list across the top all the things that we claim are why you should come to us and all the things that they, each of these competitor schools are claiming about why you should come to them. So we put the uh, us and the competitors down the left-hand side. We put all those things across the top. And we literally map it out, right? Keep your life simple. Make it green check marks and red X marks. And let's look for opportunities. What I think you will find is that most most of these schools are claiming a lot of the exact same things. So now we've got to dig down deeper. Now we've got a good framework for this stuff. This is not differentiating us. It's good. It's important, but it's not differentiating us, right? So what can or do we do that could truly differentiate us? And I've worked with a couple of universities that were tuition-run universities on this, and it it is deep digging to figure mm-hmm. this out. Some of those competitive advantages will be at the university level. So it might be these two, three, four things we put together, that's one advantage for the whole university. But others are very college-specific, sometimes program specific that draw in the the students we want that of course then do lots of other things. So gosh, there's so much to unpack there in so many different directions. I want to take this. There's a lot to it. It's such a fun conversation. Kind of circling back to the competitors question real quick. I mean, one, you know, obviously there are thousands of schools out there, you know, you can't monitor, you can't benchmark yourself against all these competitors. So how do you go about narrowing down your comparison set, your competitive set to something that's manageable. How do you recommend going about doing that? Yeah. And it it occurs. It's funny that occurs in uh, every organization, for-profit, non-profit associations, manufacturing services, academic, doesn't make any difference. It's all the same. 
if you ask the whole university, whom do we compete with? You will end up with a list of 100 plus long and some will throw in schools that we barely compete with along mm-hmm. the way. We have to narrow that list down. Whom do we bump up against on a regular basis, right? Who is the, what's the school that is most chosen by the students that we offered admission to that didn't come? Let's get that list of schools. Who is it we most lose to? Maybe too many of those. Let's pick two or three of those as our competitors. By the way, I typically, just to get to your point, five to six is what I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. So two or three of those that I'm going to pick. Then pick some proxy schools, somebody who's doing something very unique or different or that concerns you about what they're doing. And then if you want to pick another proxy school for something that's totally maybe where you're hoping to go in the next 10 years or something like that, you narrow this list down to a group of schools. It's not that you can go eyeball to eyeball with the students and say, you should come to our university and not X because and absolutely nail it. But because you've done a good job of the proxies to make sure you've got kind of pricing, you probably somewhere around 95% have that argument down pat. So some do little things that are unique and you're not going to win on those things, but you will have a fundamental group. And so it may sound messy, Jared, but I typically what I do is I ask everybody who we compete with. We get them all in. I ask them who we bump up against most. We narrow, we narrow, we narrow, we narrow. And we finally get to a list of schools. And what we call it is our comparison competitive set. Mm -hmm. So like on a strategy map, when you're doing a strategy map, it's not called our competitors, it's called our comparison competitive set. Mm -hmm. And from that, we can do a pretty good job of doing this. Right. And so then that's where you're really digging in and saying, okay, on our website, we talk about how we have internships and experiential education. And you're looking at your comparison competitive set and saying, okay, are they saying the same things? Are they making the same claims? What if I know that when we say experiential education, we're really good at it. But when our competitor says it, it's just lip service. Everybody says that. I mean, what if we know that our our offering is actually better? It's such a classic. It's such a classic question. I knew where you were going for the first three words that came out of your <laughs> mouth, where you were going to go with this. So there's two issues here. Let's start with the uh, self-delusional issue here. Okay. We love to self-delude ourselves that the competitor schools are not doing nearly as good a job as us, mm-hmm. right? Well, yeah, they say that, but they're not, you know. So we love to delude ourselves. So let's just set aside delusion. Let's just go with what they claim, all right? So we typically go with perception rather than actuality and then dig in to figure out whether it's actual. So let's go with perception. That's what they're claiming, right? So if they claim it, what are they really doing it? Can I show that we are qualitatively doing it at a much higher level than they're doing it at? Right now, it's going to have to be so high that it can be recognized by the student. Got it. That they can see it, but that we can do something like that. So we start with what they claim. Here's what they're claiming, guys. Now let's go prove that it's not right. It's unfortunate. We've got to get away from the tendency. And it happens in every company, every organization, every nonprofit. Oh, they're not nearly as good as us. Yeah, they really are. You know, and, and can I just just to frustrate everybody so that they all sign off on your thing right now at this particular <laughs> point. I have sat in faculty meetings for 25 years where I have listened to people talk about how our faculty are better 
than the faculty at X school mm-hmm. and how we just have better faculty. And every single time, I, my line is, uh, no, we do not. We have really good faculty, at least I hope we do, right? But I can tell you, and I, my field strategy and entrepreneurship. I know strategy and entrepreneurship professors at X school, and they're just as good as me. Well, let's, they're not as good as me, but they're really close. And we kind of, <laughs> but you get the point. They're a really strong second. <laughs> they're a really strong second. If you really want to do them, you can do it. But, you know, yeah, that's interesting. So what I hear you saying, the way I interpret this is if we're going to say that our and I'll just stick with this experiential ed thing because sure. I brought it up. If that's something we do exceptionally well, and we think we can really go to the mat with this, then what I hear you saying is we need to convey that. We need to be able to convey that in such a way that our prospects, they get it. It's a more persuasive argument. Essentially, we need to find a way to either dramatize that or or communicate that in just a really outstanding way that our competitors can't match. There has to be substance there. We have to have things that are substantively different, um, and we need to be able to convey that. And if we can't, even if we do know that we're better, if there's not a way for us to convey that, then we kind of need to set that aside as something we can really go to market with. Am I taking the right read on that? Yeah, I, I think that you 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 hit right on it. Look, it has to be real, mm-hmm. right? I've got to be able to go eyeball to eyeball with the student and say, you should choose us over X, Y, Z, because, and it's got to be real. And what I always tell people is, tell the students, tell the parents, test us. I'm telling you it's real. I'm telling you it's different. Test us, right? Mm-hmm. See what we're doing. Talk to people. Look at what the other universities, this is an important thing and we're real about it. We're going to win. Yeah. So you spend a lot of time talking about, and you've talked about kind of hinted at this already, things that are sort of standard operating procedure, kind of the, the standard elements or, or orthodox things, and then things that are potentially quite differentiating the unorthodox things. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? How do we differentiate between the two? What do you mean in this differentiation that you create here? So much of what we, when we walk onto a a college campus, so much of it is we simply expect to be there, right? Mm -hmm. We expect there to be an admissions group and we expect them to be able to handle our admissions. They expect to be able to go on a tour, preferably with fellow students who are on a thing. We expect to have facilities for, I'm going to pick on it for a minute here, Jared. We expect to have dining facilities that are really nice. We expect to have dorms that are really nice and open for us to be able to see. We expect classrooms that have modern technology. We expect the professors to show up in the freaking classroom when it's on time. We expect an awful lot. The lights are supposed to be on. The air conditioning is supposed to work. That's all orthodox. Nobody is choosing your university or college because of that, because quite honestly, it's an orthodox expectation. Mm-hmm. When we watch these schools try to raise the bar on orthodox things, right? What they do is they force everybody else to keep spending money on something that is not a differentiator. Go ahead. Oh, no, 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 no. I, I was just. Want to say something. No, 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 no. Actually, I was just thinking of, I think it's LSU has the Lazy River. And then, the, so we'll just set that aside. And then there's, um, no offense to anybody listening from LSU, but, uh, <laughs> you know, and then of course you find this sort of thing is like increasingly more common. And we can debate the value of that. Oh, but, yeah. but it's an example of, okay, this is unique. And then 
a, a decade later, it's no longer unique. That's right. And what it did was it forced all the other schools that were their competitors to raise the bar on something that didn't really differentiate. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty much of a waste of money, waste of mm-hmm. effort and waste of time. But you have to do it. You have no choice. I mean, unfortunately, what happens is this orthodox bar gets raised in and it's been studied in every industry and in every industry except for the airline industry. In every industry, (laughs) things get better over time. Not in the airline industry, but that's okay. But we do watch this kind of ratcheting up. I watched my former school, TCU, just spend billions to ratchet up the student feel and experience. Well, that's an orthodox thing now. We simply have to expect it. What we want to do is we want to at least come close. We want to match close Turns out in that world, plus or minus about 5% of median, students can't detect the difference. So as long as you're in the ballpark, you don't have to have a lazy river, but you have such and such that's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. But you have to have, you have to be relative close for the ones you're competing with. Now, look, if you're not competing with LSU, don't put them in the darn list, right? right. If you're not competing with TCU, don't put them, lock them out of the list. So, but for that group, Jared, you've got to, have you got to at least have it level so the student can't say, Well, I'd love to come here because you've got this and this and this, but holy Toledo, your dorms are horrible, and I just can't imagine spending four years in your dorms. You just lost them for an orthodox table state thing, right? Right, but then also to your point, being very strategic about the way you view that thing and realizing that it's very important that we also don't over invest oh, yeah. in that thing. Yeah, that's where I save money, Jared. Right. Don't overspend on orthodox. Make sure you're at or near the median on the things that matter. Mm -hmm. There's a methodology for going through and figuring that out, by the way. Make sure you're doing that kind of thing. And then put as much time, money, mental firepower as you can on the things that are true differentiators. Mm -hmm. I kind of wanted to dig in a little bit more around this conversation around when we think we have uncovered some things in our analysis that are potentially unique, let's say, potentially exceptional about our institution. You've already pointed out there's a tendency, we kind of delude ourselves. We we all have sort of this inherent confirmation bias that we <laughs> we want to believe ours is the best. How do we avoid fooling ourselves? How do we systematically go about making sure that we're actually legitimately hitting on some things that really matter. Yeah. And there's there's a long multi-part answer to this question. The first is to have a process, right? There's Mm -hmm. a real process so that we're being forced through to think about it from a process point of view. So nice thing about uh, some version, whatever version you all like of resource-based analysis, fundamentally you're looking at, is it relatively rare, unique? How long can I hold on to this cool thing? What are the substitutes for it? And how can I get value? So the nice thing about this, when you look at it statistically, and it's and actually it's been evaluated several thousand times in the research now, that it's those things are relatively orthogonal to each other. So we're looking at it from different quadrants. We found in a set of studies that was done, one of which I got to be a part of, that if you put a sufficient number of people in the room, and we usually try to get pretty large groups together to do these things. And everybody understands that we're there to be honest and open. Let's disagree right here in the room that the chances for us to make an error drop dramatically. Hmm. But at the end of the day, it's probably 
35% science and 65% art. You're, at the end of the day, I could be standing in front of a group and just fighting them and them going, no, you're wrong, Bamford, we're going to do it this way, <laughs> right? You can delude yourself. You can go on and do it. By the way, I also had a client that did that exact thing. I fought them and fought them, and it turned out they were right. Oh, no. they, oh, and they made sure I knew about it. I had, I had all kinds of mea culpas. They nailed it, and I didn't see it. But that's because, think about this, no matter how good you are, no matter how good your team is, no matter how good I am or my team is, we're process experts. The people who are running these universities live it every day in that college. They're the content experts. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, they have to decide that this is something that they can pass. And then my take is, okay, you say it's going to pass. You think it got all the way through. Let's implement it. Let's see if it works. Because mm -hmm. if it does, rock and roll. And if it doesn't, then we have ways of going on and doing something else, doing something different. This stuff is never in stone, and it moves because competitors move. Darn those competitors won't let us just make money, right? Yeah, well, that kind of reminds me of you do mention in the book that you should not be revisiting your strategy annually, right? That's a big mistake, folks, and, and because strategy, the way I, my take on that is you know, strategy runs deeper than that. You can't legitimately shift strategy that, but what does set the tempo of when we adjust strategy? Is it really just driven in response to our competitors? And how do we think about that? When do we know it is time to shift strategy? I guess is my question. So you hit on it first. We want strategy to last as long as is possible, right? I get all my employees moving in one direction. I get all my professors moving in one direction, all the administrators. And I go hey, next year, Hey, we're going to change it. No. So when does it change? So we look for big apologies to the word, although your audience will get this and love it, is discontinuities. Mm -hmm. So a big competitor change or move, a big move in technology. I mean, technology has changed everything we do in academia and the way we the way that we operate. Right. I have an iPad sitting back here that I do all of my teaching on. When even when I'm in person, so I can draw and write and do stuff. I used to use chalkboards back in the day. So when big technology changes, big regulatory changes, or big environmental shocks. So when one of these things happens, what we should be doing, we should have a leadership team. The leadership of the university should be watching what's going on. One of these kind of shocks comes through and it's like, wow, that's a big change in the way they're doing technology. Or that's a really big change in what they're offering here. Doesn't mean we change the strategy. It means it's time for us to go look at the strategy. So let's mm -hmm. go look, given this change, did it impact our competitive advantages? Did it impact what is considered table stakes? If the answer is no, we keep rolling on, but we at least keep looking. So the goal is to keep it rolling. By the way, I don't tell anybody we're doing this. Let's keep this at the upper administration level. We're going to look and constantly be evaluating, making sure that none of these changes now one of these changes impacts our competitive advantage, right? Negates it or reduces it or impacts what our table stakes are. Then we got to address it. Then you got to change the strategy. You got to change your, your efforts, right? Mm -hmm. The strategy is, is probably realistically 80% table stakes stuff and 20% really unique stuff. Mm -hmm. We've got to be aware and constantly on evaluation. But absent that, I want to keep it steady as I go for as long as I can. Yeah. You know, we're, we're talking about strategy and 
you know, thinking kind of about the the institution strategy. But you noted earlier in the conversation that, well, there could be some things that are competitive advantages that span every program, every offering that we have. There could be some that are very program specific. I, I guess my question is, when do I know that I need a unique strategy for this program or this college or whatever, you know, this offering versus no, Hey, one institutional strategy to rule them all. <laughs> How do I navigate that? Because I could see that depending on the school, you know, a large flagship state school, right? You, you could have, it feels like hundreds of strategies. How do I make this manageable? Yeah, yeah I guess is my real question. So I, always tell them let's have one strategy one strategy map with our one set of competitive advantages for the entire university entire college people blow back on me constantly i'm like no no this is what we got to do finally i relent so if the customer the student set is substantially different or if the comparison set is substantially different we probably need a separate strategy map for that, for whatever that is. So here's what happens. Might as well just play this all the way out. Groups throughout the organization, throughout the university, like we got to have our own and they do, we do theirs, we do theirs, we do this, and we do one for the university. And gosh darn, what happens is that almost all of them have at least one competitive advantage that's the same across the entire, all the programs that mm -hmm. all thought they were separate. But then they honestly have some separators, some unique things within their particular programs. So this is actually great from a university level. Now I can pitch that this is an overarching set of competitive advantages for all of this. But within this school, we have this set of competitive advantages. Within this, we've got this. Or within this program or this offering, we have this. So we have sub-maps but they align with it. Every single time I do this, Jared, every time I do it, always ends up the same way. They think it's all unique, but it's not. And mm -hmm. by the way, we want that to be the case because otherwise, why are we all under one roof as this particular college? Yeah, that's a really interesting point. It seems like if there were no commonalities, well, then there's a real problem or at the very least a real missed opportunity. Yeah. The school that kept uh, popping into my mind was uh, a school right down the road from us, UCF, an enormous school. I think the second largest state school yeah. in the, the country, they're massive. And they, in their marketing, I don't know if they're doing this currently, but within the past couple of years in their marketing, they lead with, we're a huge university. That is, <laughs> and they kind of own it, which I, I think is interesting. I, I assume it's working for them. I rail against my organizations that try to play that big game. Okay, hit me. Big is relative. University of Texas at Austin, is a huge university. Right. The University of Michigan is a huge university. UCF is a huge university. It's like, okay, I get it. What you're really trying to say is that you have the widest possible offerings because we all know what the typical 17-year-old is doing. Right. They don't have a clue as to what they're going to major in when they are coming in. So maybe that appeals to especially the ones where I just don't know where it's going to go, but I want lots. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I guess that really kind of 
you know, you look at something like that, like let's take the, the institution size. And now that I think about it, I'm like, would this pass the sort of filters in our modified resource base analysis? Like if you make that claim, it is true that there's a, a set of schools, a fairly yeah. small group of schools that can also make that claim. But then the question is like, okay, but is that really compelling to your target uh, to your ideal, ideal student? Is yeah. that really the thing that's driving them coming to you? And maybe for some, maybe for a handful it is. So I think the question then becomes, do you really want to hang your strategy hat on right. that? So I tell people all the time, you'll get things where you might be somewhat rare. You might be, right? You might even have some durability. Maybe or maybe not. But the real question is, okay, let's think it through. If it's valuable to you, do you really want to hang your strategy hat on it draws some people do you want to hang your strategy hat on something that really is compelling that gets you the kinds mm -hmm. of students that you really want? Well, in another way to look at that, just to kind of pressure test this idea a little <laughs> bit is, would it be to our advantage to become bigger? Like in and of itself, is this inherently like so valuable that we need to invest more resources in just growing the size, the sheer size of the institution is that, that hopeful. That's interesting because to me, it would seem that if you have a real competitive advantage, that is the sort of thing that you want to invest in That's correct. as much as you can continue to grow and extend. So I do this with companies too. Let's just play that all the way out. If at some point is claiming that you're the biggest matter or is big, big, right? Like how mm -hmm. much more do you offer me? How much more? At some point, don't I just become a generic individual on the campus, right? If it's about what the offering is and what the opportunities are for the students, then maybe it can play. But I think what happens is relatively quickly, it fails at, at valuable. You can't get value out of it. It's costing you so much to pour in to do this that the question becomes, what's the value on the other side for the customer, right? At the end of the day, all that matters is what the student sees as the value is mm -hmm. what they're going to draw. Yeah. So interesting. Chuck, this is such a fun conversation. I feel like we could go on for days and days talking about this. A couple of questions for you as we wrap up. Number one, if folks want to pick up a copy of the Strategy Mindset, where's the best place to do that? How can they go about getting a copy? The book is now the Strategy Mindset 2.0 because unfortunately so much changed. I had to update the book, which we did. Amazon's probably the best place. Let's just mm -hmm. be honest. Yeah, I got it in paperback. Like you said, it's under 200 pages. It's on ebook and it's also an audible because we had this brilliant guy from Hollywood do the audible book version of the book. So probably Amazon's the easiest and fastest place to get it. Good deal. And Chuck, if folks want to reach out to you, they like what you're saying, they want to connect with you. What's the, the best way to go about doing that? I would say just my website is probably the best way, Jared. So it's, although my name is weird, it's bamfordassociates.com. So probably the best way. I always tell my uh, students when they're, I tell them, reach out to me if you need anything. I said, look, I'm a consultant. I want to be found. If you type <laughs> my name into Google, I'm like the first three pages that comes up. Any way that you all want to get to me, that sounds great. Be lot of, that's that's great. a great way to do it. <laughs> Good stuff. All right. Well, sir, it's been a great conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Jared. Thanks for the opportunity. 
The Higher Ed Marketing Lab is produced by Echo Delta, a full-service enrollment marketing agency for colleges and universities of all sizes. To see some of the work we've done and how we've helped schools just like yours, visit echodelta.co. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And as always, if you have a comment, question, suggestion, or episode idea, feel free to drop us a line at podcast at echodelta.co.